Good morning, friends. How is everyone today? My name is Dan, and I'm one of the members of the teaching team here at the church. Uh, Jackson really appreciated it when he saw all the different verses from different sections of the Bible that I gave him to read. He was just like, thank you so much, Dan. I have the privilege of teaching on the topic, Does God Destine Some People to Be Single This Morning? Now, I passed a billboard last week. I was traveling north toward Atlanta. This isn't my photo. I didn't have a chance to get a photo, but this is one of those billboards. And it asks the question, it says, if you can plan for a wedding, you can plan for a natural disaster. Now, as a single person, I was a little bit offended. I can plan for a natural disaster too. Uh, Then, obviously, I thought for a moment, I realized, okay, I know what that billboard means. Then I got a little offended for you married people because I thought, what do they think marriage is? (laughs) Marriage is not a natural disaster. (laughs) The truth is it gets tricky being single and it can be complicated being married as well. Both can feel like a disaster and both can feel like a tremendous blessing when you've got the right person at the right time and the right situation. Now, a little piece of my own story may be important this morning. Uh, I personally am single, uh, and so I knew immediately I had to volunteer for this sermon. It's not so much that I wanted to do this sermon. It's more of an I volunteers tribute type situation. I saw them calling Scott for the Hunger Games and knew that that was, that was a bad situation. So I was like, I volunteers tribute. Uh, <laughs> Because on our teaching team, we look around, we've got Scott, he's married. Uh, Mike wasn't even allowed to come this morning because he's happily celebrating his anniversary. We've got Lori, also married. We've got Sam, who's married. Liz went from being single to being married in this last year. So uh, congrats, Liz. You know, I'm sure you're out there listening somewhere. Congratulations. Um, So on our teaching team, we've got a bunch of married people. And I love them. But a sermon from them answering the question of whether some people are destined to be single is a little bit like going to Chick-fil-A for a hamburger. I love Chick-fil-A. They do what they do very well. But there are some things that it's just not what they do. Uh, It's just the wrong source. So I, on the other hand, am sometimes painfully well acquainted with being single. Now, I won't go to the cathartic route of telling you all my history, uh, what struggles with confidence, missed opportunities, unrequited love, all those things, but I will tell you that at this point, I feel fairly well adjusted to it. I can also tell you that I grew up in a conservative evangelical church with that uh, assumption that I was probably going to find the woman of my dreams and get married around 21 or 22 won't tell you how old I am. I can tell you that didn't happen. I am a few years past that. And at times that's been sad, frustrating, or felt hopeless, or even caused me to be depressed in that quest for what I had hoped for. And married people, while I certainly I value their thoughts deeply, they can't quite, quite speak into my life on this topic because it's not something they're actively struggling with. I remember I had a 
good friend from college. He and I are still in touch, and we used to kind of commiserate over the struggle of being single together. That is until one day he called me excitedly to tell me he was engaged. And part of the purpose of his call was to say, if it happened for me, it can happen for you. Obviously, that's true. On the one hand, it's certainly true. On the other hand, it's really not a message I wanted from him because he had crossed that imaginary barrier He was no longer in the single. He was engaged to be married, and just that single thing made it hard for him to speak on the topic. And I realized that my struggles are different than each of yours, even if you're also single. We all have unique life experiences with unique challenges. And beyond that, even outside, especially even outside the realm of being single versus dating or married, We all struggle at times with desperately wanting something that seems out of reach, whether it's for a moment or for a lifetime. So we are going to take a moment. I know you're wondering when you get to greet each other. We're going to take about a minute here. We're going to greet one another. And as you greet the people around you, I want you to very briefly answer the question, what is something you desperately wanted that seemed out of reach? Depending on your comfort level with them, it can be something deep and world-changing or just something small that felt significant at the moment. But answer that question with one another. Take a moment to greet your neighbor and go. Now, for our friends online, make sure that you're messaging that in the chat as well. And five, four, three, two, one. All right, friends. So the struggle, the struggle with those things that we want. The struggle with those things that we hope for that never quite happen is real. Whether it's a struggle in that world of searching for someone to share life with or whether it's something else that we struggle with. Now, when we look at dating through the Bible, we find an interesting journey that's maybe a little bit different than dating today. And that's what I made made Jackson read some of for us. In Genesis chapter 24, uh, and we read 24, 12 through 13, uh, which is when Abraham's servant arrives at a well in his search for a wife for Abraham's son Isaac. And he sends up a prayer to God that he could find the right woman. And lo and behold, in 24, 15 at that well, it says, Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with a jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, Jackson, I didn't make you read that, so you're welcome, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, the girl was very beautiful. So at the well, he finds the right woman. Note that Isaac's not even there himself, so definitely not a modern dating situation, not at all like today. Now in the prayer, we see that God is involved, but we don't get the impression that God is 
driving every step of this process as a predetermined route. Now in 29, verse 1 through 11, we find ourselves at yet another well. We find Jacob here, and Jacob at this well, he arrives at the land of the eastern people, and there he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep laying near it. So we again arrive at a well, and at that well, we find in 9 through 11 that while he was still talking to the people at the well, Rachel came out with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother and Laban's sheep, we'll overlook the familial relationship. Remember, different culture, different context. We'll overlook that it's his uncle's daughter. Uh, so he goes over and and... And he, he's immediately smitten. Bible doesn't say smitten. Nobody says smitten, but I said smitten. So we're going to deal with that. And it says, again, different context. We don't kiss to greet people in our culture. But then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. And at that moment, I mean, Jacob knows that Rachel is the woman for him. So he does seven years of labor for her father, at which time her father Laban tricks him and he ends up married to Leah, Rachel's sister. So again, not like our culture. And Laban ends up letting Jacob also marry the woman he had wanted to marry. So he ends up married to both women. Lots of drama comes from that. Definitely not what I would say would be God's ideal for dating and marriage, very far from it, and all that begins at a well. Now then, Exodus chapter 2, verses 15 through 22, we find Moses. And Moses has just fled Egypt. He has, in a moment of righteous indignation where he makes a bit of a mistake, he's just killed one of Pharaoh's men who is seen beating an Israelite, he flees into the desert. He finds himself at a well, and it says, Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Moses ends up helping them out when they're chased away from the well by some other shepherds. And sure enough, Moses at that well, one of the daughters is Zipporah, Jethro's daughter, and he ends up married to her. Again, we've got this pattern in the Bible that's about as close as we get to modern dating of people finding the one they love at a well. Now we're going we're gonna to fast forward to the New Testament. We've already, we've already kind of seen that in the well, in the Bible, wells are as close to a thirst trap as we get. But modern dating and relationships are not in the Bible. So we get to John chapter 4. And when we get to John chapter 4, we find Jesus. He's tired from a journey. And the Bible tells us John chapter 4, verse 6, that Jesus comes to Jacob's well, a little reference to Jacob, and we remember where Jacob's wife was found, and says that Jesus tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Now, at this point, we know that in the Bible, when there's a well, we got some romance about to happen. 
except this gets flipped on its head. See, it's a little bit scandalous. It's the middle of the afternoon. There's not a lot of people coming to the well, which is why the woman who comes to the well that afternoon comes to the well at that time, it would seem, because she's a bit of a social outcast. See, Jesus already knows about her that she's had five husbands. She's living with a man who's not her husband. So while biblically we see the well, we expect a little romance in the air. But Jesus starts talking to this woman, and even though he knows everything about her, he's not worried about her relationship status. In fact, quite the opposite. The woman is surprised that Jesus is even talking to her because she's a woman. She's a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman, and she's a woman with a clouded past. So she's surprised Jesus is even talking to her. And yet what Jesus is interested in talking about is not any of those things. What Jesus brings out is that she's worried about water from a well. And he says, I can give you living water. See, what she's worried about is more of her relationship status. Married to five men, living with one who's not her husband. But what Jesus is worried about is something deeper inside her. And I think that is very important to us as we think about what God might plan for us, whether we're single or whether we're married. Now, we've got some sloppy Bible relationships that happen. Let, let's review some of those for a minute. Sloppy Bible relationships. We've got Abraham. Abraham is a pillar of faith. He's Father Abraham. He's got many sons. And many sons has Father Abraham. Most of you know the song. Yeah, I'm one of them. So are you. Now, Abraham, he is a pillar of faith. When it comes to relationships, he gets himself in trouble by pretending his wife is his sister when he's trying to avoid issues in Egypt, ends up causing even more issues because of it. And he again buggles, bungles things when he tries to use his wife as a proxy to create an heir. Again, another weird cultural dynamic, what was accepted then that wouldn't be accepted now. But he tries to do things his own way, which is not the way God had intended for him. And so he's trying to create his descendants his own way. And yet in the process, things get bungled for a very long time. Now, David, David is known as a man after God's own heart. And we tend to emphasize things that he did right. But then David, when it comes to relationships, he's messed up, y'all. He makes some big mistakes. 1 Samuel 18.20 tells us that McCall loved David. Now, McCall is Saul's daughter. Saul is the king at the beginning of this story, earlier in this story. Now, McCall loves David. The interesting thing about that is the Bible never, never tells us that David loved McCall. It tells us multiple times that McCall loved David, but never tells us David loved McCall. What a tragedy that is. Now, they were married, but... It feels in that case like they were married, not for love, not for good intentions, but because it solidified the throne. Now, David, despite being a man after God's own heart, really messes up this relationship. In fact, he messes it up badly enough that in 2 Samuel 2.16, when David comes triumphantly after a lot of drama that we won't go into, he comes back into the kingdom. He is dancing in the streets before God, 
And yet, McCall looks out the window. She sees David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And the Bible tells us she despised him in her heart. David may have been a man after God's own heart, but he really messed up when it came to relationships. And not, that's not to mention Abigail or the whole saga with Bathsheba. Relationships can get really messed up. And then we've got Solomon, his son, and Solomon. Solomon is known as the most wise man who ever lived, given the opportunity to ask anything from God. He's a young man, and he asks for wisdom to lead, which seems wonderful, and he has a great deal of wisdom. Yet he makes some terrible choices when it comes to his relationships. He ends up with hundreds of wives, not to mention concubines, and the way he did relationships is absolutely broken and you can easily argue that the impact of his awful approach to relationships affected Israelites for hundreds of years, arguably thousands, into the future because of the way Solomon's failed relationships broke the kingdom. Now, even take Ruth. Now, Ruth, we tend to think of her as a paragon of right relationship. Yet, even her, if we read a little bit into the innuendo adults, if you want to try and figure out what I'm talking about, it's in Ruth chapter 3, verse 14. If we read a little into the innuendo, even she doesn't get into the order of relationship building that our modern sensibilities might be looking for. See, relationships can get sloppy and complicated and messy. And the truth is, even the people we think of as, as at the, the models of our faith, who are really living out their faith in the best way possible, if we really dig in, we realize they get sloppy and messy, and they still miss the mark in the way relationships happen. So destiny and predestination are some people destined to be single well, I hear the word destined, I immediately think of the theological word predestination. And it's this tension that I think is there. Predestination is like this very high view of God's sovereignty. But, but I also think that there is a balance to be had because the Bible very clearly shows that God gives us this opportunity of free will that is essential to relationship. And somehow we've got to balance this high view of God's sovereignty and this high view of free will. And when we see the word predestination in the Bible, yes, I'm confident that God is ultimately in control, and I believe we're meant to see that. Yet God also blessed us with free will that very much comes into play in our relationships, in our day-to-day -day decisions. Now, through Jesus and the Ten Commandments, we see that relationship to God and relationship to other people is key and since sin entered this woke, broken world, we see that those relationships are often not ideal. But it doesn't mean that God's not at work. God gives us the freedom to make mistakes. And frankly, I am grateful for that freedom to make mistakes. Because it also means I have the free will to live out God's call on my life. So we have choices, we have personal hopes and dreams, and we have models to aspire to. And sometimes we even have more than one good choice. We also usually have more than one bad choice. And our challenge becomes to choose the right path 
that honors God. And sometimes there are paths that are clearly wrong and paths that are clearly right, but God does not always lock us in to path A because we have some free will amidst God's sovereignty. Throughout the Bible, we see God involved in relationships, and we also see some of the people in those relationships making terrible decisions. So am I destined to be single? Are you destined to be single or to live in the midst of whatever struggle you're struggling with? Certainly, God uses single people to transform the world in the Bible. Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, wrote much of our New Testament. He's single. Now, we don't know for sure which of Jesus' 12 closest apostles remained single, but it's clear that many were. And of course, Jesus. So if you're single, we're in really good company. Now, now Paul even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 through 9, Paul, he says, I wish that all of you were as I am, single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. So Paul sees singleness as a gift. Now, he makes concession to some people to get married, but he actually even sees singleness as a gift. Now, to be fair to some married people in the room, Paul also felt that they were living in an era of Christianity. They were living in an era where many Christians mistakenly believed that Jesus was going to imminently return and it's going to be the end of the age. So they felt a little less concerned about the years stretching out in singlehood. But Paul reminds us that you can have a powerful, powerful positive impact on the world as a single person who is living your life well. So what now? What are we to do as Christians when a desire weighs deeply on our heart and God hasn't filled it? For starters, please know that being single doesn't mean that you're less. God loves you fully and can use you fully as you you are. And it's difficult on both sides, single or married. Both have challenges, both have advantages, and both, when lived faithfully and well, can honor God powerfully. And if you're single, I remind you again, we're in phenomenal company. Jesus, Paul, many apostles, and many others. And maybe you even feel a sense of call to remain single, and if you do, that's great. Paul certainly approves, and God will honor that choice. But if you feel a deep yearning to be married, I firmly believe there's someone out there who would be ecstatic to marry you. Frankly, I can't guarantee who, if, or when you might find them because we live in a broken world with relationships that are arguably more confusing and complicated than ever in history, and that's even in the context of all the discombobulated stuff we've already talked about. But as God predestined you to live a life without marriage while you harbor a deep longing to be married, I don't see God working that way. So what to do in the meantime? For starters, it's easy 
to lose sight of growing, of working on ourselves, of, of seeking to be whole. And from what I can gather from the outside, marriage gets very difficult and the happiest marriages are ones where each person does the hard work to come into that relationship spiritually and emotionally healthy. So if marriage is in the future, how will you grow and prepare not just for marriage, but to be a more whole person right now? See, we all carry with us hopes and dreams and some are frivolous like, I'd love to visit Australia someday. There's not a deep core value involved in that. It just sounds nice. Some may be out of line with our faith. There are things we hope for that really shouldn't happen. And some are very good desires that are well within the scope of what God might desire for our life. So how will we keep seeking? A final word that brings me comfort it's Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. And this is the Israelites. They are living in exile. And they've gotten word from a lot of false prophets saying, any day now, we're going to come back from exile. Any day now. And in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah says to them the opposite of what they want to hear. He says, basically get comfortable plant vineyards, have families, live life. What they want to happen instantly, his message is, it's going to take a while. Now, we're not all on the same time frame for finding someone to share life with or whatever we're waiting on. But this message to them in that moment when it would be hardest to hear that they had to be patient living in exile has always been powerful to me. You probably recognize Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future with a hope. And we often use that as a big source of easy optimism. But the reality for them was, it was a word from the Lord that came and told them they were gonna have to be a lot more patient than they wanted to be. And I love verse 13 of that. From God, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Because sometimes in the midst of the struggle and the uncertainty, it can be hard to remember to just keep seeking after God. So if you're single and don't want to be, just keep seeking after God. Do the hard work. Make yourself available. But trust that you are not alone in whatever you may face. And in the midst of a world right now that seems broken and leaves us a lot to hope for. We are definitely reminded of that in the past week. We're reminded to keep seeking after God even when things aren't what we hope for. And to finish off today, we're going to take some time on reflection as we prayerfully react to and work through as a community of believers, the brokenness in our own country and our own world right now. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are present, that you are present when we hope for things that we have not seen or experienced yet, that you are present when we see a broken world that's not what we would like for it to be that we can seek you 
and that you desire the best for us in the face of whatever we encounter in life. And God, when things are hard, we know, God, that you came and you experienced hardship as well. And we know, God, that while we may struggle, while we may weep, while we may be uncertain at times, that you are very much with us in the midst of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.